Hey, y'all. Pardon my voice if I sound a little sick. I got hit with the worst summer cold of all time earlier this week, and I'm still recovering. It was as if I had wronged someone significantly in an earlier life. I was doing the neti pot, I was boiling water, and then holding my head over the pot with a towel around my head. Nothing worked. It made me think, uh, we might need an app that doesn't exist yet but should for single people. The only time I resent being an independent woman is when I'm sick and my dog is staring at me without an ounce of empathy, wanting to go walkies. So, okay, here's my app. Here's my pitch. I'm seeking VC funding. A boyfriend that only exists for the period of time you're sick. You order him on the app and he comes over and pretends you have years of history together and walks the dog and brings you tea and Tylenol and collects the trail of used tissues you've strewn around your bedside table. Possibly gives you a sponge bath, but that's not required. Depends on the chemistry. Then when you're better, he leaves. If you've got money to invest, let me know. All right, I've got a big episode for you today. It's big in two ways. First, if you listened to my podcast back when I was at the IPP, you likely heard Joe Jerome's voice on there quite a few times. We were probably fighting. I always loved having him on, even though I acted like I hate it or hated it because he says what he thinks without pretension, and he's always upset about something, which makes for great conversation. In our friend group, we call him Eeyore. Anyway, he wasn't allowed to come on the new podcast while he was at Meta. Couldn't get approval. Um, which was, Meta was his most recent gig. So this is his first triumphant return, and in fact, his debut performance on the Privacy Beat. Uh, just so you know who a bit about him, if you don't know him, Joe also previously worked at the CDT and Common Sense Media, among others. He's a policy guy. He's a really smart guy, also, who's been around long enough to know some things. And that is the most nice things I'm going to say about him, to be not eloquent. Um, but that's that's the nicest I'm gonna be um for years uh on that. If you know if you know me, you know why. Uh all right, so on to Joe in just a moment. First, some news highlights. Yesterday, lawmakers at the federal level deliberated on how to protect the children from the dangers of living life online. The Senate had a hearing on two kids' privacy bills, COSA and COPPA 2.0. Um, also, at the state level, a California judge heard NetChoice's case against the state's age-appropriate design code. So first, a reminder, COSA aims to address the teenage mental health crisis we're facing in the U.S. by placing a duty of care on platforms hosting kids under 16 on their sites. It would require platforms to set privacy settings to the most robust by default, to publish annual audits identifying potential harms to kids on their sites, and um, to prevent kids from accessing content that encourages harmful behaviors like self-harm, um, eating disorders, suicide, etc. cetera. Uh, I just figured everyone was down for this COSA bill. I mean, after the age-appropriate design code passed through California unanimously last summer, plus President Joe Biden emphatically ordered Congress to pass both COSA and COPPA 2.0 this week. Five times he said, pass it, pass it, pass it, pass it, pass it. But I took the time to actually Google it since I wanted to write something about it and talk about it. It seems like a pretty big deal. And now I realize that many people hate this bill. The ACLU, the CDT, GLAD, and many other acronyms have come out against it. The gist of the beef is twofold. First, advocacy groups say that in the end, companies would have to actually collect more data on children than ever before to verify ages, as is mandated under the law. 
Uh, and second, opposition groups say censoring the content kids can and can't access would actually prevent LGBTQ and trans kids from accessing information that's crucial to their safety and well-being. Despite the jeers, both COSA and COPPA 2.0 passed out of the Senate Commerce Committee um, yesterday, and they both head to the Senate floor now. Regarding the age-appropriate design code in California, NetChoice, which is a coalition of tech groups including Google, Meta, and Amazon, among others, is asking a judge to block the code from coming into effect, claiming it violates companies' First Amendment rights by dictating what they're allowed to post on their sites. Notably, 17 other states have proposed legislation similar to the um, AADC, which is just not a cute acronym to say. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Uh, but anyway, 17 other states have proposed legislation similar to the code. So will we see challenges in those 17 other states? Probably. Yesterday, a judge in San Jose considered NetChoice's request for a preliminary injunction in the case called NetChoice v. Bonta. The hearing wasn't public, but Jess Meyer was there and has a thorough thread on the ping pong of our arguments between the state and NetChoice. Um, I, I uh, posted that thread in the Privacy Beat newsletter. Um, if you read that and if you don't, why not? Give me a chance. In the case, it sounds like based on Jess's reporting that the judge is leaning toward granting NetChoice the preliminary injunction. And while we don't know when she'll rule on that, she's been urged to do so quickly, given that the code comes into effect next July. TikTok. Um, for what it's worth, folks on the Twitters or the X have told me that if the judge grants the preliminary injunction, it's a pretty good indication of how the ruling would come down on the code itself. So we could be seeing a little reversal there. As I mentioned, be sure to check out the latest edition of the Privacy Beat newsletter, which I write and edit for more on what happened this week and to catch this week's hot tweet of the week, which I guess now I have to call the hot X of the week. But that might mean I hit some spam filters. Hmm. Anyway, I'm trying to grow the newsletter from the ground up, and I'd love to hear what you think of it, even if you don't like it. If you say it nicely, I like critiques. On to today's show with Joe Jerome. Hope you enjoy. And hey, remember that you're doing amazing and the best you can, and just keep going. Love you. Talk soon. How am I? I mean, I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I told you I'm under tremendous amounts of pressure now to capture whatever the unique dynamic you and I once had on these shows. And I know. And- well, I know. And we don't see each other as much anymore. Um but I feel like we still have the same sort of love-hate relationship that we used to have. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I know. Maybe now, maybe now. Oh, I've also been talking to my therapist about trying to be more emotionally expressive. So now maybe it'll either just be a love relationship or a hate relationship as opposed to both. Oh, no, I think you can balance it. I would love if you were more emotionally expressive. That's been one of, I think that's why we fight sometimes. Because I'm like, why can't you just be sweet and nice and like say nice things to me? And you're like, nah. Uh, I I paid for this test called the EQI. It's like an emotional quotient analysis. And you failed? And yeah, basically. <laughs> like it's it's divided into like quadrants and uh on things like optimism and emotional expression, I, I just didn't even <laughs> register. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um but before we get into the business, first of all, I love the shirt you're wearing. Can you describe to listeners what you have on right now? Uh, I 
I am wearing the uh, IEPP's Privacy Advisor Podcast shirt, um, which is a rare collectible that I acquired several years ago yeah. from another podcast yeah. that may or may not have been hosted by the same person. Yeah, I designed those shirts, you know. Well, I mean, I instructed a designer to create them, and they were a big hit. I gave them away at one PSR or Privacy Summit or something, and I like made people come find me if they wanted one, and it was like this whole... like scavenger hunt sort of thing people were like trying to track me down i felt so wanted so i this is where i become overly critical already but you spent all this time designing a t-shirt yet the podcast used stock like photography and still uses stock photography <laughs> that like no. doesn't even register with privacy no um when i the the podcast now does they went back to the old logo that we had when we like didn't have we didn't know if it was going to be successful and we used just something standard. But I had, if you recall, designed a new graphic image that was just me, like my face kind of on a side angle. And like, I don't remember what was Well, that's, that's not terribly useful now that you're not hosting the show. Well, anymore. I know. That's why they went back to the old one. But I'm just saying, like, I made, you know, I made some moves once the podcast took off. I miss, you know, I have to say, I miss, um, it's. It was always, it was a big jump leaving the IPP. I had been there for 10 years and um, I was very comfortable there and whatever. And then moving into the tech world where I've worked now at two startups and the thing about startups is like, no one really knows you yet. And so you don't have like a mailing, like a huge mailing list. Like obviously um, it grows or whatever if you do your job right. But like the daily dashboard is just like, you're getting yourself in front of thousands and thousands of people every day or every week or whatever. So like growing this podcast from the ground up has been hard. Like I beg people at the end of every episode, like, will you please share it if you like it? And like, it's all word of mouth. You know? And what's the best way to, I mean, now that Twitter slash X is burning before our very eyes, like, is this just going to be shared across like LinkedIn? Like, what is your medium by which you get the word out? That's what's so hard. Cause like I do social media for our company too. And like, you know, it took me so many years at, to grow my own handle just from like reporting. Yes. And to do. pass me. Yes. I passed you. Finally, we were competing for a while. And then I was like, bye. Um, and now it's like, I don't know, like the whole point of Twitter is that everyone's there. And so now if we're all dispersed on all of these different, like no one seems to have agreed on the next Twitter, like where, you know, everyone's like, I'm out of here, but like, we don't have a place that's like the place. So it's like, as a social media manager, de facto, like, where do you spend your time? Are you just posting across four platforms? Like, it doesn't even make sense because you're not going to get critical mass on any of them. You know, like no one is everywhere. So I don't know what to do. I'm, it's a struggle. Better hope and pray that the metaverse arrives sooner rather than later. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Um, before we do, you just took a big trip somewhere, two places, right? Yes. Where'd, um, where'd you go? So, uh, during my, what's the, what's the expression in between jobs? Um, I took a lengthy trip to South Asia. Uh, I went to, to Bangladesh, uh, which is where my partner's from. And then, uh, hopped on a scary plane to Nepal. Um, scary plane? And, and it was my, and this was my first time in South Asia. And I, it, it was, I keep saying an interesting experience, which people associate as being not fun or not relaxing, but it was, it was, it was informative. And it was so hot. Yes. Um, I'm revealing my my both, I think, Western naivete and just general cultural ignorance. 
I did not realize that there were six seasons in that part of the world. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Well, there are six, and I chose to visit during the hot and rainy one, mm. um, which, again, I, I think you complain about the heat in D.C. all the time. Um, I've always sort of thought that was pretty weak sauce of you. But <laughs> I, I also think having, like, gone to Dhaka I've never experienced humidity and heat and rain like this before. So I will never complain about the DC temperatures or heat ever again. I just don't think I, now that I've experienced this, I, I it's, it is like winter here right now. So what do they, and that's saying something is we're under a heat advisory right now. Um, what do you do? Just stay indoors except for when you're like, tr- like transporting. Uh, I mean, I, I do, yeah. uh, I, you know, it's a, like, it, it makes you really appreciate the, the miracle that is air conditioning. Yeah. Um, but also how bad it is for the environment. Um, yeah, I, you're, you're sort of paralyzed. It's, it's really hard. I, I, I would not survive in that sort of heat, like doing any sort of hard labor or having to go outside, but people do it somehow. And what but, about you know, your partner's name is Sohana, right? Yes. What is, like now that she, because she doesn't live there anymore, she lives in Florida, which is also one could argue yes. like hot as hell. But so when you were there, was she just like fine, like not breaking a sweat? No, she doesn't do well in the heat either, and okay. in fact complains about that quite a bit. Okay, fair enough. But in a but in a loving and kind way, if she's listening. <laughs> um, and you did a little bit of like privacy teaching while you were there, where you were you were a professor. Um, well, <laughs> I, uh, I actually, it was, it was great. She, my, my partner actually organized, um, like a, a lunch talk with, uh, it's called ULAB. It was the, the University of Liberal Arts at Bangladesh. Um, and we did a session on augmented reality and immersive technologies. Um, and so I got to go in and do my spiel talking about the metaverse and AR and VR and what does this mean for free expression and, you know, for your listeners' privacy. Um, and I actually thought the, the, the student questions were phenomenal. Um, you know, they were, this is going to sound terrible, but you know, I've I've done some guest lecturing and some talks with, with American students and, you know, oftentimes it's like pulling teeth, getting them to talk. Um, didn't have that problem here. Um, they also were pretty quick to point out like, how does any of this technology help our country? When is it actually ever going to be in our country? Mm. And I didn't have good answers for that. Uh huh. What is the state of technology in the spots that you were like, they're significant, like they have like older iPhone models or like what? No, 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 no. Okay. I don't want to, this is, I, I feel like I'm like this is sort of a cultural imperialism type of talk we're getting into. Um, I was, you know, I was struck. Everybody's on their cell phones constantly. Everybody is constantly taking selfies and glamour shots and posting to, well, you know, the, the other thing I thought was really interesting was um, maybe this is just showing where the culture is and, or where, where people are in that part of the world. Um, you know, I was in Nepal and there are all these signs being like, no TikTok, no TikTok. And then there was places where you could like put in a donation to have, go to like a, like it was like a photo op that had like TikTok logos on it. Um, so it's pretty clear, you know, where people, what, what social media application people in that part of the world are using these days. Why were they saying no TikTok? Because, I mean, it, those were usually uh, signs at like, um, you know, various temples and other oh. sorts of historical monuments. But it's so pervasive that they're like, listen, we know you're on TikTok, but cut the crap while you're here. Well, you know, have some, have, have some respect for history and culture and religion. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, okay, so when we... 
Oh God, the last time we pod. So first of all, I should say, I'm super glad that you're here because I really do love, mostly I love fighting with you because I feel like I can fight with you for some reason. But I won't, but I won't do that now. Now I'm full of good spirits and will only say nah, nice things. I bet I can get you. Um, but it's always very fun doing podcasts with you because, um, well, first of all, you're just, well, maybe not anymore, but you know, I would describe you as just perpetually incredulous and baffled, um, which is a baffled. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're always baffled by just the status of things, the status quo and, uh, and dissatisfied. Um, you have sort of a Larry, you have sort of a Larry David, you're kind of a Larry David type, like just constantly high pitched and talking with your hands. Absolutely. Um, I am, I am Larry David. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I enjoy, but, um, but since the last, so I'm really glad that you're here because there was a period of time where, well, first of all, I think you just wouldn't come on the podcast, which like rude. I don't remember I, where you were then. I was not allowed to join no, no, the podcast. No, no, that's at Meta, sure. but weren't you, since I've left the IPP and since I started no, this podcast, you, no, no, you've no, always no, been no, at Meta? No, 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 False. The la- I can tell you the last time I was on your prior show, it was when, you know, you brought your privacy besties Coben and Gabe and me, but I wasn't one of your privacy besties to talk about what was the pandemic doing oh, for yeah. our sense no, of self. And you're a privacy bestie. Come on. Oh, I am. Yeah, I mean, mate, we okay. have our fights and disagreements, but I still consider you a privacy bestie. We're still on our well, privacy bestie thread. We like I hear from you almost every day, not directly to me, but on the thread. You know. So I feel like I've been we've been together. In any event, that was the last time I was on the show and then that then there was the pandemic where there really wasn't much to talk about except state privacy stuff and you know we've got, you know, David and Kier doing that these days, so who needs my my POV? And then I went into the corporate sector and couldn't talk and yeah, here we are. Once you were at Meta, you had a um gag order which was unfortunate. I was like, and you even asked actually to your credit. I was like, can you just ask them? And they were like, nah. Well, you know, I guess I can say it now. There, there, there's some pretty significant privacy questions when it comes to the metaverse. So even if I came on, even if I came on board to try and sell the great and glorious metaverse vision, um, I'm not sure I'd have great answers to any tough questions you have about data protection and, and how you, how some of this technology will ultimately comport with, uh, regulation both in the united states and in in the eu fair so tell me a little bit about your work at meta though you're no longer there they went through there was the big layoff situation which unfortunately captured you in the end um but tell us about like what did you do when you were there (laughs) <laughs> Good question. I, I guess I, for a long time, was sort of flippantly saying, I don't know what I do there, um, which is not a not a great line to be using publicly on a podcast. Uh, so I was a member of the Reality Labs policy team. Um, so people, you know, oftentimes are asking me questions about social media. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really like social media. What attracted me to the role there was getting to work on virtual reality and augmented reality, which we should talk about because I still think they're really cool technologies, even though um, I think... I think the bloom has gone off the rose a little bit there. Uh, so I was on the policy team, um, which is a weird role at Meta, I think, um, in the sense that uh, Meta has a big still, uh, I'm gone, but you know, they still have a giant policy team um, as a result of like their, their weir- the development of the company. Um, and the, the policy team is, I, I would say, responsible for engaging with 
understanding the external community, whether that's um, advocacy folks, other privacy professions, regulators, certainly. Um, so trying to sort of issue spot where like problems could emerge. Um, and then trying to translate that into uh, at least in my role, sort of product counseling. So how do we get product teams and engineers um, to design their products to be uh, at least aware of where we think there might be not just privacy, but competition, uh, content moderation, um, like uh, potholes, so to speak. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, a being there, I sort of got to experience what their privacy process was firsthand. I got to sort of see what the actual operation of the FTC consent order looked like. Um, and I got to see a lot of really cool technology. Um, you know, uh, it was it was nice to sort of be there and well, and, and interesting to sort of see the, the sort of transition away from the, you know, for, for the hot second when the metaverse was all anybody wanted to talk about. It was like this huge thing. Every company had a metaverse strategy. And, you know, I don't think anybody actually ever could figure out what the metaverse means, but everybody was talking about it. And I'm sitting here working on, uh, you know, cool things like eye tracking and spatial computing. Um, and then, you know, that was like the hot thing for the time that I was there until suddenly you start seeing changes in the market. And now everybody's obsessed with artificial intelligence um although everybody's uh, artificial intelligence has been a thing that's been around for a while i guess chat gpt has just really sort of made it more like tangible for folks um and so you know I, I i guess i got to see how the company responded to that and what their plans were and i mean uh, i was trying to convince myself i was you know doing some good along the way um but ultimately i think i just learned a lot about how I guess meta is at the center of big tech, um, but how big tech operates. Um, can you tell us about like how things operated under the FTC consent decree? <laughs> or is that like, are you under like a um, non-disclosure? So my, so the, the you know, it's interesting because I, I came from an advocacy background where a lot of folks are very critical of like, what are these consent orders actually accomplishing? And it's just, you know, some sort of auditors rubber stamping things. You know, that's that's been a pretty common critique, not just of Meta, but of, I think, a lot of the FTC consent orders. Um, not for nothing. Meta has invested a lot in building structures to try and comply with that order. Um, so like they do that like uh, techno technology wise like te yeah uh and and frankly i mean you know if people are really interested uh, although i don't know how if people really want to hear about how meta operates considering just the cynicism and plus the general expertise of the privacy profession um but you know meta has both a chief privacy officer for policy and a chief privacy officer for product um and the two of them actually did a podcast for lawfare i believe earlier this year where they sort of talk about the nuts and bolts of how policy and the mechanics of the system operate to try and, you know, let's say, ensure privacy is protected. Um, that said, uh, you know, I, while I was at Meta, one of the first things, one of the first books I was reading, um, for, <laughs> for better or worse, was Ari Waldman's Industry Unbound. Okay. Um, which I, I'm always, I, I think everybody in the privacy profession should read it. Although oh, nice. the book is very, very critical of the privacy profession. It's very, very critical of the IAPP. It's very, very critical of everyone at these companies. Um, Why? It, you know, Why? It, What's the gist? Well, the gist is we've created a lot of, I think, privacy theater. 
Um, you know, I, I think when you talk about how we operationalize privacy, and you know, I, I, I now that I'm this on this happy kick, I think you you have certainly been on the receiving end for me of a lot of just like, what is the point of the privacy profession? Like, mm-hmm. what are you actually doing? What are we doing here? This is pointless. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I'd be curious, like, how do you define privacy? I think the privacy profession has not done a good job of actually defining what privacy means, and. As a result, I think companies can create processes and trainings that make it so that everybody thinks that they are doing a good job on privacy mm-hmm. um, when they're not. When if you were to talk to a person on the street or you were to talk to an advocate or an actual lawmaker that wants to legislate on these issues, what the company is doing is not satisfying them. Um, and so I think there's just there's a tremendous disconnect, and I think uh, Professor Waldman really gets at that in his book. Um, I don't think he has great solutions, uh, which is you know part of the problem of the book. And his book is very angry and screed like, which you can probably understand why that appeals to me. Mm, you loved it, um, yeah. But you know, I, I read that book early in my meta tenure, and and it resonated with me. So that's my uh, I guess diplomatic way of answering your question. Well, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I answered it at all there. <laughs> okay, I'm going to scratch my follow-up question because I, I smell what you're putting out. <laughs> but I think, like, part of the problem with defining privacy is that it does change, right? Like, it's different in every context, kind of, depending on, like, what the product is. And and also because, like, consumer or the average human's expectation of privacy isn't really solidified. So it's not like you can have this idea of like, well, this would breach their privacy because privacy to one person might not be privacy to another. Yes. But I I guess my, my pushback on that tends to be that like, we still keep defaulting back to a, I hate to say it, like the notice and control framework. I mean, there's more, there's more to data protection than that, obviously. Notice and Um, consent, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, But you know, whenever we talk about data minimization, a I don't actually know how data minimization works. Not just in a in the metaverse where you need all sorts of data, but also with artificial intelligence. I think those core principles just increasingly get challenged. But also, even when we talk about data minimization in the new round of state privacy laws or ADPA, um, I always think at the end of the day, there's still a provide notice and get consent like catch to that. You know, like minimize it. But if you can't minimize it give people some notice and gives people consent like that. There's always that like exception to the law. Like even we talk all the arguments we're seeing about the GDPR, there's a lot of discussion about like what is proper consent, but if you can get that consent, you can do whatever you want. Um, And so as much as we keep talking about, well, we shouldn't put the burden on folks to make these types of decisions at the end of the day, we've created a, you know, a legal and policy infrastructure that still puts the burden on people. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you are a company saying, well, we can't minimize it, isn't that probably not correct? Like, (laughs) like, just keep what you need to provide the service. And but what is the the service? And I think this is something I, I, you know, I, I struggle with at Meta. Now, Meta will spend a lot of its time talking about personalization, and that gets into the universe of advertising. But if the goal of an immersive head, like what is the service an immersive head, an XR, VR, AR headset provides? Mm. Um, it's supposed to be overlaying digital content onto the real world in a contextual way. That's 
that's incredibly broad. And to provide that service, you need all sorts of data. Um, and, and the solutions that we seem to have a lot of the time, um, this is, another, this is something I'm actually trying to think through with, you know, your privacy bestie Coben mm-hmm. is there tends to be sort of like, well, do things on device, don't share it to the cloud. Um, but that also doesn't really work because a lot of this technology is reliant on co- cloud processing to, you know, achieve its full ends. And we just don't have the processing power uh, on an individual device to do really cool things locally. Um, like it's a size thing you're saying like you need yeah, I mean, to- like so the, the the thing that i'll say like working on augmented reality and virtual reality is there's a couple of like and and this is where i you know i'm still really optimistic about the technology but it's pretty clear you know not just you know from what we're seeing from meta but you know there's reporting from you know google has sort of shifted its ar strategy um you know apples has been they're a little bit with their vision pro they've been out there a little bit but you can still see they're they're sort of being tentative um like the real issue is all right how a what is going to be the killer use case we don't necessarily have that yet but then how do we provide a wearable device smart glasses that don't melt your face off that can last for more than an hour so like how do we how do we get the compute in the glasses um and how do you do that at a price point that is reasonable for an average consumer um you know trying to answer all three of those questions is just really really hard and i think where companies are really struggling is you then want to overlay on that like let's put in some pets and privacy enhancing technologies and that's already constraining you know your your ability to deliver an all-day product that doesn't melt your face off at an affordable price now we got to do it in a privacy friendly way it's not easy not easy to do but why does storing it in the cloud? So storing it in the cloud just presents more privacy risks because then you're just inviting in a third party and maybe government has access to it. And like, those are the risks that we're talking about in terms of like storing it on device being the solution. Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, ever if you, if you're, I'm channeling the EFFs of the world here, I mean, as soon as the data goes off a device, you can't really control who gets it. It's, you know, the companies can do, a company gets it and they might have control, they might, they might put purpose limitations on it, but you know, there's a lot of skepticism of that. Uh, You really have a problem once it gets into the hands of third parties. I mean, that's, that's the issue of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Third party app developers get data and it gets spread around an ecosystem in a way that's just not even if even if I agree that it's it can be controlled in some way, it, like regulators and policymakers and the public are skeptical about what's going on, and then you know you add on top of that law enforcement um, or government access, and then I, I think about with you know immersive technology, you add on top of that sharing data with other users, um, yeah. you know in a in a universe where you've got smart glasses and you know that you've already seen sort of demos of this um you know the idea is we both put on our smart glasses and this is a generic use case that i don't know if people would spend thousands of dollars for but imagine we could both play like virtual chess you're in your apartment i'm in my apartment but we can both play virtual chess in a way that makes it so i i see a hologram of the chessboard and you sitting across from me and vice versa um can't do that all on one device this gotta be shared with the other device uh and and you know that that similarly like expands when you start talking about um spatial mapping and spatial computing because the goal of immersive technology is to understand the environment it's in um so it needs to have realistically like a a centimeter accurate understanding of where walls are um of where 
obstacles are. And you can't do that on device. And in fact, you want to probably share that across devices to have like one great communal map that makes everything better. Um, but once you do that, you're just you're sharing a lot of data. Yeah, I just, first of all, I never want to play chess on a hologram using a hologram, mostly because I don't know how to play chess, but also. Because... <laughs> right. Well, it's not the use case for you. I know. What if, but also, what if it is like... a drinking game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beer pong. I'd do that. You want virtual beer pong. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so crazy about like how we end up confronting all of these problems as tech like does new and cool stuff and like 75% of the new and cool stuff I'm like do we really need that though like now we're all running around freaking out over this you know chess game and it's like I guess you can't stop the march of technology but it just always surprises me like okay all right all right I I'm going with a meta use case there but I think there are, there there's some really powerful compelling use cases with augmented reality that you know that cuz I I've had this I've gotten this a lot like what do we need this stuff for yeah um the reason I got really com- there, there's two re- two examples I always like to give about why I was re- I'm really interested in this technology. The first is we're both in Washington D.C. Um, my partner doesn't have any sense of geography. I don't think you do either. Most people mm-hmm. don't know where they're going. The amount of times you see people face first in their phone on Listen, Google Maps. Can I just can I just pause? I want you to keep your train of thought, but I just want to correct you because I'm actually very good at being like coming out of a building and being like I feel like I'm supposed to go left. But you feel so you're cr- critiquing me because we would be out somewhere or you would be out somewhere and I'd go to meet you and you'd be like, just go Southwest on 16th. And I'm like, the fuck does that mean? Like where, which way, how am I supposed to know which way Southwest is? Like, look at the sun. And you're like, yes. everyone everyone knows like which, you're the only person that doesn't understand like Wait, a compass. You can look at address numbers going up or down to determine whether things are going. Anyway. Anyway, okay. continue. So people face people are face phone. first in their phones. I, I mean, I don't know if you, I've certainly, I've had multiple examples walking around DC where people just are like in their phones as they're crossing sidewalks. Yeah. Um, and they're doing, they're just following other people. They don't even actually have the walk light. I've had to pull someone out of traffic because a car is coming, but they think that they can just keep going um, because they're face first looking at a map. Is that what happened when you got hit by the car? No, that's when I was trying to run to catch a bus in the rain and didn't see that there was a stoplight. Ah, um, okay. mm-hmm. Which, you know, I'll, I'll say that was that was leaving a Facebook dinner. So everything involving <laughs> Facebook is mixed emotions with me. Um, just so everybody knows, I broke my foot in the middle of like an IEPP global privacy summit one year. And oh, it's but, not funny, but it was, but it was, oh man. It's not funny. Everybody, you were, you were laughing at me because I had to wear like, I couldn't wear pants for months. <laughs> it will forever be. I can't find that Instagram video. Like I know I Great. posted it. I'm, Joe showed, like for everyone who doesn't know, I've probably told this story before on the IEPP. And if you can't see it, it might not be as funny, but like legit, Joe shows up, we go out, we meet for like lunch and drinks or something on a Sunday, I think it was. And Joe shows up wearing like, I mean, it's one thing if you have to wear comfy pants, like I wear comfy pants every day of my life because I can like Winnie the Pooh it, like no one sees below like my waist because I work online. But like he shows up in not just sweatpants, but straight up like what we call now bear pants. It was like gray, fuzzy sweatpants that looked like you looked like you were the mascot for some type of like college basketball team or something and it's forever and then we got in a fight because i was criticizing you and you're like i'm I'm, I'm, i have a cane and a boot and you're just 
Oh God, I have to find that video. No, you don't. Okay, oh, so anyway, so right. one amazing use case I think for augmented reality will just be navigation. Like I, I think about the ability to like pull my eyes up from from the screen and see where I'm going to go on my glasses. I, I just think that that's really compelling. Yeah. The, the other use case I come to is, you know, I don't know if you've ever been, I think it's magical. Um, when you go to like a, a, a foreign country and you go to like one of the a museum and they've got like a placard in a foreign language and you can use um, Google to translate that. Like you literally just use your camera, put it in front of a foreign language and Google puts it in English. Mm. Um, that is like literally like we're talking about like we're gonna we're rebuilding the Tower of Babel, um, and both of those are I think really important use cases that are powered by immersive technologies. And I'm not entirely sure how you do either one of them without like sharing data. Mm, yeah, fair. I will say as a perpetually single woman who refuses to settle, um, I often want to travel alone. And one of the barriers for me is like, if I go to a country that doesn't use like, for example, that alphabet, um, you know, like I would feel really scared to go someplace where I can't read signs. So I can see like, you know, that, that is a powerful use case. Um, Oh, I wanted to ask you something about this topic. Oh, what is the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Oh, come on. That's that's Metaverse 101. What? Okay, so virtual reality is about creating a virtual environment around you. Um, it, it is generally... So you have a Quest 2 device, which I believe is still in a box. I um, used it once. So that is virtual reality. You put on a headset and you are taken to another world where, you, you know, as far as you can tell, it, it's just a different place. Um, it doesn't have to be via headsets. Like a, a great example of, of virtual reality manifested in, you know, in popular culture is like the holodeck on Star Trek The Next Generation. where You've you lost sort of, me and I'm asleep. You know, that's unfortunate. It, <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation should really speak to, to, to a woman of your age. Uh, okay, so that's virtual reality. Okay. Augmented reality is about imposing a digital layer on the real world. So the example that tends to be given that I don't think is all that great, at least initially, was Pokemon Go. You know, you could pull out your, your camera phone and see a dancing Pokemon in a real world park. Um, initially it was literally just an overlay. Uh, you know, augmented reality can be as simple as all of the sort of fake advertisements you now see on basketball courts and soccer fields and, uh, like picture mounts. That's augmented reality right there. Um, interesting. And and, yeah. Don't you think it's so tacky? It's so annoying. It's like, just because you (laughs) you can slap a logo on anything and make, like, I get it. It's like, oh, we can make money off of our mound without actually having to like modify the mound itself at all with these overlays but it's just so cheesy it's like you can't look at anything without seeing like chewy.com you know what i mean it's just like but what have we turned into aren't you a customer of chewy.com no it's too expensive they want to ship me something every month that may or may not be something i want which just no you know oh. i'm not i thought you I'm too would cheap give, for that. i would i would give your dog son only the best oh i mean he gets the best like the other day i went to mount desert ice cream here in Mount Pleasant and bought him a doggy sundae for $5, which is literally just a scoop of ice cream with like a tiny bone on top, like cost them 25 cents. But yeah, he's the prince. So he gets what he gets. Um, in any yeah. event, uh, like yeah. 
augmented reality, I think that's actually where all of these companies are really going. Um, virtual reality is, is cool. Uh, it's, it's certainly has compelling use cases for entertainment and gaming. Um, you know, it's not just meta. There's PlayStation has a VR headset for the PlayStation 5. So there's really good gaming applications. But if you think about what's going to, like be the next computing platform that's augmented reality and if you looked at apple's announcement of the the vision pro a couple months ago um it's still a headset that can operate in virtual reality but almost all of their use cases were stressing the fact that it was it was using what's called pass-through technology which is um using you know cameras and computer vision uh to basically create a like the ability to see your outside environment in the headset. Um, and that's sort of the stepping stone to, I think, true augmented reality glasses that, well, didn't come during my time at Meta, but I still hope come at some point in my lifetime. Yeah, what's up with the glasses? Because, like, it was a big deal, and then you wore them and took the worst picture well, ever taken of me not, at brunch. Those, those were not augmented. Those were smart glasses. Oh, there's a difference. Are the yes. smart glasses still a thing? Do people wear them? Do they get? Are they still selling? The, yes, they they are really? still. You can go to. Are you wearing them right now? No, I'm not. I'm back. Wow. I'm back to to Warby Parker and not being an agent of surveillance. Yeah, it was the worst. Like I was really. I was first of all, I was hungover, and we all. Why had are you run. admitting these things? <laughs> because I am who I am. Like you know, I don't okay. need to hide. Um, we had a fun night and then we had brunch plans the next morning, like privacy brunch plans. And I show up barely alive. And of all times, Joe is across the table, just taking candids of like me. Like there's one rule for, I think for all people, I feel bad for people like public, uh, officers and, you know, the president, et cetera. In general, you should not take a picture of someone with their mouth open. No one looks good with their mouth open. Like you want to, you want to set yourself up, you know, you got to have either a smize. Yeah, exactly. You look like a fish. Uh, and so I looked like a fish and it was terrible and it made me forever hate those glasses. So I'm really glad. You <laughs> well, all right. I guess, I guess I wasn't being a good salesperson for meta. Well, no, Hey, you, you know what? You find me in the bear pants and I will find a picture of you looking like a fish taken with surveillance glasses. <laughs> Fair enough. It's mutually assured direct destruction. Um, okay, now I'm going to back up to a question that I probably should have asked you at the very beginning, but this is a genuine question I have. Again, I have nothing to hide. Like, I feel like my brand is kind of like asking the dumb questions, but you'd be surprised how many people come back to me and they're like, yeah, that question. Well, you know, come on. I, uh, there, aren't, there aren't dumb questions. I can be a real arrogant snob. Well, wait for this one. Okay. Wait for this one. All right. All right. I'll try to suppress an eye roll then. What is the metaverse? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, well, okay. You talk about it like it's a thing. It's not, it's not a thing. I get, you know, the the sad part is everyone's like, well, people have like, they're building the, like there is, there, there is no thing that is the one thing that is the metaverse. And it certainly doesn't exist now. Um, okay. Now it, it starts as a concept in the dystopian science fiction novel, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, where he's describing the metaverse as basically being like, you know, people escape the bombed out climate change ridden, this horrible earth to go to a virtual place, uh, akin to what, you know, you see in ready player one. Um, and, and that's the metaverse. I don't think that's what anybody's really talking about now. Um, uh, 
I think there's there's a couple challenges. There's no one definition. Um, if people are legitimately interested in this, um, Matthew Ball is probably the the, the, the single mo- biggest authority on what the metaverse is. But also the the World Economic Forum just put out a report about, and it even focuses on privacy issues in the metaverse. And they they have an initial like table of of seven different definitions of what we mean by the metaverse. So there's not one definition. I don't think there's one definition within Meta, and and I think that's sort of the problem that we face now um because you know i i i almost feel bad for meta because they you know they they really they they had i think you could argue a successful rebrand as much as you can have one like that but they sort of have ruined the term metaverse because i think when most people think of the word metaverse now they're thinking of Horizon, or Facebook's Horizon product, or social legless avatars in some sort of social experience, and then you're going to attach to that some NFT grifting. Um, you know, I, I don't even know if our our dear friend Omer Tanay still has an NFT on his on his Twitter avatar. But like, I like that you call him Omer Tanay. Well, that's very fancy. Is it? How am I supposed to say it? I don't know. I've always heard it and said it Omer Tanay. Oh. All right. Tenet, like a tomato, tomato, Byzantine, Byzantine. <laughs> okay, so, so, so we have a bunch of different definitions. Um, it's been co-opted by social VR and it and and, and weird Web 3.0 crypto nonsense. Um, I, I always think of the metaverse as sort of like uh, like ambient computing, like digital information available at your fingertips that's relevant that is relevant to the real world. Um, and that's a lot further away. Um, and what does that mean? Like, I need you to talk about it. This is what my problem ah. with AI. Everyone talks about AI like it's this thing that you can feel and touch. I or like something that we have to be afraid of that like standing in front of you would look like X. If I can't see it, I can't understand the risk or the well, so, all right so that, that maybe that explains your entire relationship with privacy right there 100 <laughs> that's why i asked the dumb questions what digital information available at your fingertips that's google yeah but re- but relevant and context and contextual to your physical environment does that help so, i mean look so like here I guess you don't watch Star Trek, but if you look at every science fiction show known to man, you know, I think about a, a, a universe where, again, oftentimes the conduit through this is glasses, um, but you're cooking at night and you want to, it, basically it is, you think about like you're cooking at night and you look at a recipe on your phone. Well, instead of having a recipe on your phone, why don't we just like, why don't we just broadcast that recipe onto like your kitchen wall? Um and why and at the same time you know you could share that recipe or where you are in terms of cooking steps with you know a sous chef or your mother uh you guys could like work on the same recipe at distance i don't know if this is a great use case but you know what i mean like it, it allows so like, you... if, so like if i'm in the metaverse i'm wearing a headset no 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 no, no. i don't think so no not at all um and i think that's the problem everyone associates it now with these giant goggles um yeah i, I think I think you can have augmented reality with your phone where you point your phone at something. I mean, you already see this now with like Ikea apps. It's like, let's map my room and like mm-hmm. beam some uh, furniture in there. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it involves a headset at all. I think it involves current technology that we already have being used in different ways. Let me start over here. Cause I don't think I'm making anything clearer for you or your listeners. I think the metaverse is a term like, 
I think it's roughly analogous to the Internet of Things. Uh, if you go back in time 10 years ago, 2013, I think, is when the FTC had one of its first conferences on the Internet of Things. Yeah, and I was so big for so long. So everyone, like, the Internet of Things happened. How many smart devices do you have in your home? Um, how many, mm. I mean, you can get all sorts of connected fridges. We might still think they're a security disaster or, or you know, you're paying too much. Um, but almost every bit of technology we now have is connected and online in some way and sending information around. Um, when you think about how the Internet of Things was used by, you know, businesses and industry, farming, um, like, like city use of technology, like the internet of things happened. Um, but we don't call it that anymore. It's just yeah, things it's are connected. Life. Yeah. It's just life. Similarly, like right now you're, you're like, I say the word metaverse and you're like, Oh, I got to put on a headset and go pretend to hang out with Joe in, in virtual golf. I don't have any interest in that. Um, mm. yeah, I think you fast forward 10 years, the cluster of things that companies mean by the metaverse, whether it's an embodied internet or sort of more contextual information, um, being able to like being able to sort of broadcast information into physical space. Uh, that's just going to be a common way we interact with technology. I, I think another reason it's really hard to define, and this is something that always I, I struggled with when I first joined Meta and I would talk to my former friends in the privacy advocacy space. I think so many of us, and I would say you probably are included in this, are wedded to the idea of the phone as like the end state of technology. Um, like we've got this and it's hard to imagine what's going to come next. And I think when we talk about the metaverse, that's shorthand for what, what it comes after the phone. Um, you know, it's, it's similarly like you think about privacy groups and they, they think about like an app store model and walled gardens. I mean, I don't know if apps, if there's going to be an app store in the future, if you know, you're going to interact with Ronald McDonald, a digital Ronald McDonald outside of wall, uh, outside of McDonald's, whether that's something that you experience at like an app level. Um, but that's, that's sort of hard for people to grasp because we've become so wedded to the, our understanding of technology as being roughly analogous to our experience with our phone. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that, that's good. that convinced you that's at all. If it, if it didn't, yeah. it's, it's fine. Like you know, no, no, no. That's helpful. That's helpful. <laughs> Doesn't uh -huh. matter. Metaverse is dead anyway. We're every all anybody cares about now is generative AI. I know. Um, I this is another place like, you know, there's like two types of people. There's like the people who they don't understand something and that like invigorates them and excites them and they want to under, I mean, I have that in me. I, I thought that was you. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I think it's, again, it's this idea of like this invisible threat. It's like COVID. It's like, <laughs> like a, a, the metaverse and AI is like COVID. There yeah, we go. It's like, I can't see it. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know where the threat lurks. I don't know why. I mean, I know why we're obsessed with it because like we're now seeing companies start to employ it. But like, talk to me a little bit about AI, you know. Why um, me? I don't know anything about AI. Really? I mean, I know as much about AI as everyone else, which is we all are faking it till we make it. Yeah, I guess that's I, true. Look, I, I, the thing I want to say, it, it was interesting. Get the, the you know the day after I got laid off from Meta, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I really put all my eggs in this metaverse immersive technology basket, and then it's like people reaching out, being like, "You want to write about AI governance, or you know, how do you want to get involved in that?" I'm like, "Well, crap! I really missed the. I mean, I, I picked the wrong emerging technology here." Um, 
I think what's fascinating about this this discussion around artificial intelligence is like AI is not new. So much of what we're talking about, and you know, I can throw a bunch of you know. Uh, general adversarial networks, deep learning, machine learning, reinforcement learning, supervised learning, all of that stuff that's been going on for a while. I mean, you think about like advances in computer vision, which really are what were useful for fueling statistical improvements in facial recognition. That's all artificial intelligence. Um, and that's been going on at a steady clip for years. But now, you know, Instead, we just get the launch of, like, I guess, Dolly and ChatGPT, and I think people are able to, like, go to an interface that's easy to use, type in some stuff, and it's like Google. Like, it's just magic. And so now everyone is is really, like, thinking about whether the ramifications of this technology on people's day-to-day lives, uh, what's it going to mean for the future of education, Um and it's sort of like, well, all of this stuff was in the background for a while. It's just now it's, it's really captured people's attention in, a, in an admittedly really like tangible way. I mean, you said you don't, if you can't see it, you don't understand it. Well, you know, you play around with ChatGPT for a couple hours. I think you understand it a little bit more. Um, well, I mean, like what we're talking about when we talk about AI is just algorithms, right? Yeah. That's like the, the long and the short of it. Well, so, like okay. some human. I, I, look, I'm, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm, poo-pooing my own expertise but like you know there are obviously a lot of folks now that are like in the ai space i mean i you know within the iep we've seen this already with the iep like there's this giant fight of like am i an ai expert or like there's just a lot of weird stuff going on here um but like you're right it's just a it's just computer instruction and i think there's a really interesting philosophical question behind the notion of artificial intelligence of like humans, I think, have this sort of innate gut reaction, like, we don't want a computer system to be like us. So every time a computer system gets, like, how do we define what intelligent action is? You know, we've had for, but Deep Blue was able to defeat um, chess experts 20 years ago. Well, each time you get a computer system that's able to replicate a human action, we're like, well, that's not quite intelligence. That's just something else. Um, And so I think we keep moving the bar a little bit here. I I actually think one of the problems is we, we have used this term artificial intelligence. Like, what is intelligent? How many human beings are actually intelligent? We might just all be like hormonal, uh, the id doing whatever. I, I always think it's fascinating how little of our, how little we are aware of our own existence. Um, you know, I, I've done a lot of work on things like eye tracking, and you know, on one hand, people think they have control over their eyes. You realize we don't. Like we're functionally blind. Um, our brain. What do you mean? What do you mean? Um, so it's interesting. Like your your eyes are constantly moving around. Like our brain does a lot to fill in the gaps. There's also a lot of stuff you can do where you can see you have like a, we all have blind spots in the middle of our eyes. Um, we don't have very good peripheral view or eyesight whatsoever. Instead, our eyes are darting around constantly to help our brain fill in a cohesive, like understanding of the world. Um, and so I think this is one of the reasons people get really concerned about all the stuff that your, your eyes can reveal about you that you have no control over um both you know what you're what you're sexually attracted to but also like um you know your eye movements can be they they change as you age uh they can be used to and for all sorts of medical conditions whether you have you know adhd um but we're not really aware of that we instead think we're very much in control of our eyes Uh, we very much think we're very much in control of ourselves and there's a lot of stuff going on in our subconscious or that stuff that's just sort of being done automatically 
this is my long rambling point of saying, like, what does this mean for how technology is evolving and what we mean by artificial intelligence? Uh, there's a lot we just don't understand, and we try to take shortcuts um, to understand things a little bit better. I mean, stereotypes uh, and um, other types of assumptions exist for a reason. We're trying to sort of organize our world together better. Um, and as we try and inject those sorts of problems into artificial intelligence, you know, this raises all the sorts of questions about bias and discrimination that is just appearing in data sets. That's a weird, yeah, that was a weird answer. No, it's okay. I'm interested in the eye tracking stuff. Um, so, <laughs> What's up with AI, AI, that, bias, that part- deep blue, and, oh, eye tracking. Uh, no, but I think, I mean, I so I understand, I, I haven't even read up a lot on AI because, like, it's everywhere and trendy and it makes me, like, I don't know, for some reason I'm just like, ugh, I can't, like, yeah. I don't want to be just another person like chirping around about AI. Like everyone's chirping and it's exactly. like, okay, I, I'm, yeah. I'm in the exact same boat. Like, I feel like I should have yeah. deeper thoughts, but I, what am I going to add? Like, I mean, so the main concern, like I actually like, I do like the philosophical underpinnings of like algorithmic conversations about algorithms related to the ways that humans actually impact that like right like there's always an input and as long as humans are like writing the codes there's always going to be like some type of bias in there and that can have really harmful repercussions for certain like groups of people you know um but in terms of ai strict like again this like it's everything and it's nothing um ai the big privacy concern there it seems to me from the outside is, is the, is training the models, right? Like this data scraping and the fact that it just hoovers up information. Like, is that the big, the big concern from like, just if I'm, if I'm speaking really broadly? Yes, you are correct. I don't have anything to add to that. Like, again, it, wow. it, it comes back to, I think, core principles of, of data minimization and purpose specification. H- how you do that when, you're just trying to collect all the data to do things. Right, right, right. Okay, cool. But don't feel... worry. We'll, we're going to have some notices and we're going to have some consents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey. Um, hey, do you care about kids' privacy anymore? You spent a lot of time <laughs> on consents media. Oh, man. So it'll be interesting to see when you do your sort of roundup of the news where we are with COPPA 2.0 and COSA. Well, I know. So I'm bringing it up because um, tomorrow, as you know, there are, there's three things going on. There's, well, there's the hearing on COSA and COPPA 2.0. And then there's also, um, there's also a judge is going to hear the case about the California. Wait, no, maybe that's not what's happening. There's a hearing on the California. Age appropriate design uh, code. Yeah, design code. Um, yeah, so my question for you is like, are you tracking? You used to be in charge of like tracking this nope, stuff. I'm done. Like, <laughs> I, I started, started this, like, I, there, you know, one reason I went to Meta, both because I was interested in AR, but also, I, you know, I, I, I was so tired of this just debate about privacy legislation at the state level. And I, I, I clearly missed a lot of the action. But I, as I'm always telling the folks that are really invested in this, what, what have you all really accomplished? Like, do we think privacy is protected now? I, I sure don't. But I'm also cynical. When it comes to the children, I, oh, geez. I mean, I, I think, you know, my, my, my personal view is, I, well, I, I think 
kids specific laws are are missing the forest for the trees. I think that's an unpopular position to take. Um, I also do. I understand where politicians are like there's certainly bipartisan consensus that we should protect the children. Um, I don't exactly know what we're protecting them from. Um, you know, if you look at uh, either the Surgeon General's report or you know, this discussion about the, the teen mental health crisis and how it's being fueled by social media, I, maybe, but I also think there's, I, I actually, I'm certain that there's equal amounts of evidence that suggest social media has been really valuable for young people. And it's very, it's, it's sort of disappointing to me to see all of these folks focusing on the negative and we got to, we, we have to solve the negative, even if it causes us to get rid of all the positive. Um, particularly when like the, the realist in me thinks kids came out of a two and a half year pandemic where I think all of us became sort of socially stunted in some way. Um, we have a lot of like economic disparity in this country. There's a lot of just uh, like, I don't know. I think we're the, I think we ought to address climate change because it's been a little bit hot out. And so we've got these, we've got these serious issues that I think really do weigh on children. Um, and instead mm. it's like, well, we just, we gotta, we gotta fix the algorithm so they're not getting negative content. Oh, all right. I, I guess that's worth spending our time on, but I'm not certain about it. The other thing I, and then, you know, I can, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox is like how, there's been a lot of discussion about age verification and age estimation. That's, you know, we're just, how do we do it? And I keep coming back to, I think the best solution is sort of the the type of age estimation tools that we've seen from Yodi, where they, they, you give them a selfie and they estimate your age. Hopefully they get it right most of the time. Um, and but hold on. But, this is the whole thing that I think is crazy is that like we as privacy advocates are like, I'll never forget actually you actually pointed this out to me. One time you and I went to a talk at, I think it was at CDT when you were still there and Woody Hartsog was speaking. And he said during this chat, this was probably like 20, I don't know, 16, 17, early on in my tenure in DC. And he said, um, he called for a full out ban, full stop on facial recognition. I remember you saying like, whoa, that's really big that he called for, like, that's really them, them's fighting words. I know you want to speak. I can see your hands up in the air. And I, and that was when I really started focusing on facial recognition. And that's when I really got interested in this idea that like, once your face, like your face is irreplaceable, once it's out there in the database, you know, as we said, like third party vendors, like ad tech universe, like the data leakage is unstoppable. Like you're in a database somewhere and you cannot replace your face unless you're in like a John Travolta, Nicolas Cage movie. Excellent movie. And so I don't even think I've ever seen it, but I get the gist. And so like this idea that we're going to use facial recognition. It's not facial verify... recognition. Whoa, 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 stop. No. But the self? No, no, no. But Okay, fine, fine, fine. No, no. Fine. It really bothers me. Recognition... I actually I called out a reporter the other day who was saying like, uh, the ESRB wants to use facial recognition as a new COPPA verification method with the FTC. Yes. Not facial recognition. Facial analysis for the purposes of age estimation. It's a very different thing. Like, How is facial analysis different? Facial recognition is I like am trying to match a face either one to one yeah, or one to many. You don't think that data then gets shared? Maybe, I upload a selfie, maybe it may- and then the the Department of Motor Vehicles or like well, whatever well, government. Well, well, okay, so hey, you're a privacy professional. You don't have you don't believe in the power of contracts. Like I I, <laughs> I I used to get this pushback a lot. Like, well, we don't trust how the company might also share the data. Well, no, the company is contractually bound to provide its technology for the purposes of age estimation. If you believe they're going to be doing other nefarious things that counter their own contract, well, I don't. I, 
No, no. But okay. So the FTC just recently been coming down on Premom, on GoodRx, on like these companies that were like, well, no, we were just doing things that are standard practice. Like we weren't selling the data. We were just sharing the data with Facebook to then retarget our, like, there's well, all that, I mean, that gets into the giant fight between what is sharing and what is selling. That's, well, that's, I know, but what I'm saying is that like, I don't believe in sharing data with any company. <laughs> who, like basically like you're like, the data, the okay. The you know what data is so lucrative. I will see that point then, but I think in a universe where we're obsessed with like protecting kids, don't we have to identify who the kids are in some way? But that's so that's where I agree with you that this legislation is BS because like <laughs> I didn't I didn't say that you said that. Okay, sorry. I was more diplomatic. Sorry. No, I know, but I just think that like kids are kids. They're very resourceful. They're way yes. smarter than we think, especially now that they're on like the phones and the iPods from like toddler stage. Like there's never I just don't think there's ever going to be a way to actually prove like they're going to lie. They're going to find a way to get the content they want by whatever so, means necessary unless you get real invasive with like the Giving a you know let's have let's put every kid agreed, agreed. fingerprint in a well, database so the, and have them. The, this is the, I think the fundamental issue, at least with COPPA and the way it's been like discussed in in the popular press, is like it, we treat it almost like a strict liability regime. If one kid can get through, the whole thing has failed. I mean, we it's always going to be uh, a, a risk threshold. Like if we think we can estimate 95% of kids, 90, is that good enough? I mean, that's the issue I think we've had. You were interested in facial recognition. Like, when do we think a technology is good enough to be used for XYZ purpose? Because nothing is going to be 100% at all. And and I think we're we're missing ourselves uh, or we're, uh, we're deluding ourselves or lawmakers are deluding themselves and they think anything's going to be perfect. Um, and then, of course, I'm not the, I'm the first person to say this. I think the other issue with the internet is it just hate to use the the s word scale like there's this analogy like well we don't let kids get cigarettes and alcohol they got to show their ids yeah except you know you don't have a 300 million users of the local liquor store um and so yeah you're there's always going to be a trade-off um you know the one thing i i will say i learned from my time at meta that i i word of advice to anyone at Meta who's still there, like Meta doesn't do a good enough job explaining the trade-offs it makes. Um, I don't know if anyone would believe them, but there's trade-offs in every decision we make. Uh, do we care more about privacy? Do we care more about safety? Do we care more about security? Do we care more about integrity? You got to pick one. You can't have them all. Um, and I think, you know, in, in privacy land, we're like, well, we got we want privacy to the max. Well, privacy to the max has some costs. Now, at, when we're talking about kid stuff, that's that's not really privacy. It's more child safety. Well, child safety to the max is going to have some pretty serious costs. Um, I, I wish I wish lawmakers would realize that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I think, like, in terms of what percentage is good enough, like, to me, with facial recognition, I know this isn't our focus right now, but I'm coming back to it. Like, to me, facial recognition should have to be 100%. I think the risk that a person goes to jail. That's not even, that's not even the threshold we use to send people to prison. It's well, that's a whole other. <laughs> if I could work in any other field, it would be prison reform because that whole situation is fair enough. Fair bad. enough. Okay, but like 100%. the ramifications for being yes, because the ramifications. Like, what if someone gets convicted of a murder? Like, someone gets convicted of a murder because like a camera caught them and they were misidentified okay. as being that person. Like to me, that risk is too high. Like, okay. I can't so in, in that them. universe, what, what do you do? 
um, there might not be a technical solution that gets you to 100%. So then we, coming back to all of these kids, safety, private, whatever they are, like, if you can't, if you're going to have mandate companies do something that we know they can't do to 100%, like, what do you do? I I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's where, where it's we struggle. Fair. I know, because then you, yeah, I get that. I do think in the kids debate, like, the one thing, like, I don't think you're going to stop them from getting the content they want. But I do think that, like, what we're trying to do to regulate addictive algorithms is something worth it. Like, I find myself, like, I had to delete, this was years ago, but I, and I'm, we're not, this podcast isn't for us to just shit all over men, but, like, <laughs> I, I had to delete my Facebook app because I was, like, I found myself going to the bus stop back when I still took the bus and, like, went places and I would like just auto go to my like my thumb would just go to Facebook and I would scroll and I'd be scrolling past things I'd already seen before and I was like what am I spending all my time like doing this for it scared me I deleted it I'm still addicted to other things like I recently I don't think I'm addicted to TikTok but I wow was you're, on, you're spending... on the TikTok because people sent me dog and like dog videos and now like i love dog content on tiktok and also like funny videos and i will like seriously like i understand why we're worried about the children because like i will look up and be like oh my god i've been on this for an hour didn't notice but i'm like just like it's so easy and i do understand that being a risk the other thing is that i do think that social media I guess I can't really say it's social media because before social media, we had magazines, but I think it's so pervasive now. Like these ideals. I just saw the Barbie movie. Oh, nice. Oh my God. Best movie I've seen. I don't know what you'd think from a male perspective, but as a feminist, like, wow, that was well done. Just such good social commentary and also absolutely hilarious. I hear Ken is a men's but, um, rights activist in the film. <laughs> yes, he is. It's amazing. It's so funny. Ryan Gosling does such a good job. Um, and Margot Robbie as well, just incredible. But anyway, it, you know, part of the theme of the movie is that women are held to these like unattainable standards and you think that you're a piece of crap if you're anything other than like basically a Barbie. And like, I can super relate to that. And I think that like the pervasiveness of social media and like all these girls who are like influencers or selling makeup or selling bikinis or whatever, like it has made it so much more in your face that those feelings of like inadequacy are really emphasized more than they were before we just that's had fair. like a people magazine no, on the that's table. Fair. You know I, what I mean? I'm, I think that is very I'm harmful. very cognizant of the fact that like when when we were kids, like you had to like dial up to get online and when you were home, you were away from school. Um and now you're effectively never you can never turn it off. Um there's there's some truth yeah. to that. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I, yeah. I guess I don't know what the legislative solution is. I guess you know we we're going to ban auto scrolling. Okay, or infinite. I know. Scrolls. I know. I know. I I don't know what the solution is, and that's actually something I was talking to Gabe about the other day. Our good buddy Gabe Maldoff. He was um, he was saying like we were talking about what's the solution, and we were we were lamenting that like. I think every industry is probably guilty of this, but like we're really good at pointing out the problems, but yeah. it's much harder to to say, well, here's what we do about it. You know what I mean? Like Twitter is basically all of us just like, yep, 
you know, shooting off at the mouth on like, oh, this is dumb. But like, that's the easy part. And the very difficult part is coming up with practical, you know, who I think is actually pretty good at that is Cam Carey. Like, I think he's pretty good at being like, here is what should happen. What? I love Cam. Everybody loves Cam. He's just so sweet. And he's like, I just want him to tell me a story like Alvaro. I asked Alvaro to come on the podcast, by the way. I uh, DM'd him, and he's a very busy commissioner. He's very busy so these days. He hasn't but, gone back to me. He but, always does. But still very, back. still, sorry, Alvaro, still so swoon-worthy. Oh, so swoony. He's like, gosh, still like, you know, writing poems on Twitter. and. Um, no, I, I really, I... I don't. I always feel. I don't know why I'm always saying this. I don't want to give him too much credit, but I've always really admired how he's. You know, even on Twitter, he's like giving credit to his staff, and I think really done a lot to before they all left. Try to be sort of bipartisan on the FTC. It's just a. There's a sort of genuineness there that I, I've always really admired. Um, I don't know if I could. I don't know yeah, if I could ever exactly. emulate that myself because you know, I'm too angry. Oh no, you could never. You just oh, oh god. Can you imagine just you just being Thank you. Thank you for that uh, vo- that vote of confidence. Oops. That's you. That's my impression. That's, that's my impression. I, that's also your Omer voice. Yes. It's close. You when you're incredulous, you get your Omer you get an Omer pitch to you, I would mm. say. Um I really could talk to you for so much longer. It's been really nice chatting. I think I should wrap because I try and keep the podcast to like 30 or 40 minutes and we've got like an oh, hour yeah. going and I, on. I but... mean, I, you know, I was hoping to break your top 10 of, of people who of like p- popular episodes, but if this is long, no one's going to listen. And I'll, then I will forever be in the shadow of, of, of Gabe and Coben. Your privacy best. Some people like long form. To be clear, we were we're on a thread with um our buddies uh, Stacy Gray, Coben, uh, uh, who you all know, I could say his last name, but Zweifel Keegan. But, um, and, uh, Gabe and Joe and I, and I was planning this with Joe on the thread, and I was telling Gabe and Coben that their episode, even though we recorded it, I think in January of this year, is still up in the number two slot holding on right behind the Phil Lee episode. And so Joe's been feeling a little bit of pressure to, um, to compete, but I feel like you did a great job. You weren't even that mean. I didn't cry. We didn't get into a big fight, um, which is great for us. I think maybe you have really turned a corner. (laughs) He gave me two thumbs up. Um, all right, let's do this again soon. And you can tell us what's going on with your, um, are you going to be a professor? Are we breaking this news or is that this is not official? I can. Oh, yeah. Uh, to be determined. OK. Um, well, when you have an update, you can come back on the show and tell us all Sounds about good. it. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jojo. Bye. Bye.